Hey everyone, you're listening to the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. I'm Franco Terrazano, the CTF's Federal Director and Spokesperson here in Ottawa. I'm joined with our brand new investigative journalist, Mr. Ryan Thorpe. And Ryan's been a busy man. He's been here for all of uh, three and a half minutes, but he's all already been digging up some good stories. Now, Ryan... Our CTF supporters know that the governor general is no stranger to the taxpayer cookie jar, but you dug up some more wasteful spending coming out of Rideau Hall. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, Franco. Well, the governor general landed a $40,000 salary increase during the pandemic. So let me break down the numbers for you. In 2019, the governor general's salary was $302,000 in 2022. The governor general's salary was $342,000, right? And I think the context is important here. This is a time period when Canadians, many Canadians across the country are losing their jobs. You know, businesses are going under. People who keep their jobs are, in many cases, forced to take pay cuts. Right now, people are struggling to afford groceries. Mortgage payments are through the roof. And people are worried about a recession on the horizon. And meanwhile, the governor general got a $40,000 pay raise during the pandemic. Folks, let this sink in for a quick second here, okay? Before the pandemic, you already have the governor general's salary above three hundred thousand dollars then throughout the pandemic since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic the governor general gets a forty thousand dollar pay bump Ryan big question in my head right now is why in the world would the governor general even need an extra forty thousand dollars yeah it's it's a good question uh the government tells us that the pay must increase every year because it's legislated in the governor general act so these bureaucrats and politicians it seems to me are trying to duck accountability, right? What can they do? It's legislated. Well, Franco, I'm new to the CTF, but I already know that we pay MPs six figures to change laws. So maybe one of them could get off their butts and do that, right? The Governor General Act is not chiseled into stone. It's not set in an aspect. This could be changed. They could begin changing the law right now to stop and reverse these pay hikes. But the government isn't doing that. It's rubber stamping pay raises. Yeah, rubber stamp and pay raises while people can't afford the price of ground beef at the grocery store, no less. Okay, Ryan, I'm going to do my best to actually say this sentence as a devil's advocate without laughing. Okay, so so bear with me, folks. Uh, I see online that the governor general should be getting salary increases because inflation is high. Okay, what do you say to that? <laughs> First, uh, the annual say, uh, salary increases that we've seen, they're coming in slightly higher than the rate of inflation. So it isn't simply that this is just tacked on to match the rate of inflation. But I think the broader question is, why should the governor general be getting salary increases for doing the same job, right? It's not as if the scope of her duties have increased here. Uh, it's not like the governor general's rent is going up, right? Taxpayers are already paying for the governor general to live in a mansion, Rideau Hall. And as we know, thanks to some earlier work from the CTF, the governor general can expense as much beef Wellington as she can stomach. So why does the governor general need a 40,000 pay hike? I think, <laughs> I think it's a valid question. 
<laughs> yeah, folks. I mean, remember, eh? That uh, that beef Wellington dig right there by our new friend Ryan. That was about the uh, that that week long trip to the Middle East that the Governor General Mary Simon and her entourage took a week long trip, and they somehow managed to rack up nearly six figures on fancy airplane food. They enjoyed beef Wellington, beef carpaccio, pork stuffed tenderloin. They enjoyed a trip that ended up costing us taxpayers over a million dollars for a week. But what did us taxpayers? get a value for that trip. All I hear are crickets. Now, the National Post worked with the CTF to publish those receipts in its newspaper. And after Ryan did the good digging to find out that the governor general had a $40,000 salary bump during the pandemic, the National Post, Ryan, ran your story on his front page. So like, just take us behind the curtains here on how you dug up the story and how we worked with the National Post to get the information out there. Well, I was uh, I was digging through the public account and that's when I noticed that the governor general's salary was going up during the pandemic years. Uh, so I reached out to the government to confirm that this was indeed happening. Um, you know, quite frankly, I was pretty shocked. I couldn't believe the governor general would be getting raises during the pandemic when the salary was already more than $300,000 to begin with. Um, so the government confirmed that it indeed had been increasing by $40,000 to be uh, clear since 2019. And then the government confirmed that the governor general's salary is going to be increasing yet again, right? We don't know what that salary increase is going to be yet. Uh, I'm told that it hasn't been determined, but that is certainly something that I'm going to be keeping my eye on moving forward. Okay, so <laughs> I know it's going to get even crazier, listeners and viewers of this. Uh, so, yeah, the governor general's salary all, right now, while while they're in office, is uh, three hundred and forty-two thousand smackers, three hundred forty-two thousand dollars. But some of the benefits in retirement or even crazier than the salary. Ryan, why don't you break down what they're getting when they leave office? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think the craziest perk, I mean, there's, there's a lot of perks that come with this gig. I think the craziest one um, is that is the expense account for former governors generals. So former GGs can leave office and still expense taxpayers more than $200,000 every year for the rest of their lives. Okay. And that extends up to six months after they die, right? <laughs> so even after, you know, they're six feet under the dirt, they're still expensing taxpayers. At least they can. I mean, I've never, I've never heard of anything like that. Uh, I, I, I don't know what, what to make of it really. Yeah. You know what I always think of, Hey, you know, uh, the M night Shyamalan movie, I see dead people, folks, we get expensed by dead people here in Canada. What a plot twist, hey? Uh, but there's another crazy expense, and that's the pension. Yeah, that's that's right. So on top of the massive salary that they already get when they're in office, on top of this expense account that is very significant, former governors generals can get $150,000 per year as a pension, and that is for the rest of their lives. So right now, we have five former living governors general. And if they keep collecting the pension to the age of 90, that is going to cost taxpayers about 18 million. And the craziest part about this is they get the full pension regardless of how long they served, right? So we call this the Payette pension problem. The last GG, Julie Payette, 
left the role after serving a little more than three years. And, and I think it's worth noting that there was a fair degree of controversy that swirled around her during that time period. Well, she is still eligible to receive more than $4 million through her pension if she continues to collect it up until the age of 90. And quite frankly, I think that's crazy. Well, you think it's crazy, Ryan, because it is crazy. Ryan, you did a great job digging this up, man, in your first uh, hour and a half on the job. You've already broke a few stories. One of the stories is this one, Governor General Pockets or Lands, we should say, uh, $40,000 increase to the salary since uh, the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. That story made its way onto the front page of the National Post, so not a bad first week on the job. Ryan, for our listeners out there, if you're mad, you should be mad. Let's take some action, why don't we? We have two opportunities here to push for change. Okay, Number one is that there is currently a parliamentary committee right now looking at the Governor General's expenses. Okay, Number two, budget is right around the corner. So now is the perfect time for those two reasons to contact your member of parliament and tell them that this is crazy, enough's enough. Let's rein in these uh, platinum perks for the Governor General. Hey everyone, I'm Jay Goldberg. I am the Ontario Director here at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and I am joined by my friend and colleague, Franco Terrazano, who is in Ottawa and is our Federal Director. So Franco, we recently did a show about a federal union pushing for, and this is insane, a 30% wage <laughs> increase over three years. But you're digging up info uh, showing another federal union. Uh, they're pushing for an even bigger pay and benefit increase. Can you can you break it down for us? Yeah, quite right. We thought that a 30% increase over three years was crazy. Well, put your coffee down, folks, because it's about to get even more crazy here. The Public Service Alliance of Canada is a huge federal government union, and PSAC is pushing for up to 47% increase in pay and benefits, okay? That would cost taxpayers about $9.3 billion over that three-year contract, and it's an extra $27,500 for each bureaucrat each year on average. Okay, wait a second. So, so I mean, a lot of us are really thrilled with 2 3 4% increases, yeah. especially in this time of inflation and high costs, but you're saying... 47%? This union wants a 47% pay hike? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the PSAC, this federal government union, is pushing for up to a 47% compensation increase over three years. Now, Jay, it's so crazy, I couldn't believe it with my own eyes on this head right here, <laughs> that I had to go back and forth with the Treasury Board of Canada Secretariat, their media people, multiple times just to confirm that it is correct that they're pushing for up to 47% compensation increases over three years. Now, the TBS, that's the arm of the government that is handling these negotiations. Uh, they were very, um, they took their time with me and they confirmed many, many, many uh, different times that that is correct, up to 47% compensation hikes. You know, Franco, uh, so these union negotiators, they're pushing for 47% increase. Uh, do they not realize that there's a record usage of food banks? You know, 20% of Canadians are skipping meals. They're worried about losing their homes at 47%. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty crazy that they're pushing for up to that 47% compensation hike over three years. Now, again, I said PSAC is a large federal government uh, union body, so they are negotiating for other groups. Uh, they're also pushing for a 29%, 28%, and 25% uh, increase in compensation across their other bargaining groups over those three years. Yeah, I don't know if they're thinking this is going to come off of some money tree in Ottawa or what's going on. But, Franco, I want to make clear because you're talking about wages and benefits and we're talking about compensation. But there's a lot of other really crazy benefits I think a lot of people may not realize that PSAC is pushing for. So what are these non-wage or, or benefit um, asks that these guys are going after? And Jay... If you and I, okay, were to go to Regina and go meet with old man McKay, our boss, and ask him for some of these (laughs) non-wage benefits, he would laugh us out of the room, okay? But let me just read you uh, some direct quotes from the TBS because this is – This is coming out of them, the government, not me. I couldn't even believe it. So the TBS noted, quote – PSAC has a significant number of costly non-wage related demands. The union wants, quote – Paid leave for family-related responsibilities from 37 and a half hours to 75 hours every year. That's two weeks of paid time off. And Jay is on top of, quote, four weeks of automatic vacation leave after four years of service rather than after seven years of service, end quote. So, Let's say you're a recent university graduate, okay? Let's say 23 years old and you get scooped up by the federal (laughs) government. Well, right now, you'd have to wait until your 30th birthday uh, to be able to get four weeks of vacation. But if PSAC gets its way, that, um, that recent university graduate would be able to sip sangria on the beach for four weeks when they turn 27. Uh, but look, it doesn't end there. PSAC also wants, quote, all overtime paid at double time, where now it's most often paid at time and a half, end quote. And uh, this federal government union is also pushing for bigger shift premiums and meal allowances. Oh, man. So someone hired under like their model. We're talking at 27, they hit four weeks. So that's at least four weeks vacation. Imagine if they're staying there until they're 65. How many years we would be paying us taxpayers, 38 years for these four weeks of vacation. And I'm sure that'll just go up further and further the longer they're there. Um, so you were also talking about a meal allowance there. Uh, last I checked, these bureaucrats were working at home in <laughs> Ottawa. Um what are we talking about with meal allowances here? Well, that's that's the question, right? That's a great question. But let's remember, let's remember that PSAC, this federal government union, is the same union that called a would-be back to order off uh, a back to office order, sorry, a quote, egregious violation of workers' <laughs> rights. They called a would-be back to office order an egregious <laughs> violation of, of workers' rights. Okay. So so that has me thinking here. Uh do bureaucrats really expect taxpayers to pick up the cost of their meal if they're working from home and toddle to the fridge to get a sandwich. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but look, I've been throwing a whole bunch of different stuff at you. Let's just recap some of the finer points here. Okay. So the demands coming from this government union, PSAC, they want 
up to 47% more in pay and benefits. Those demands would cost taxpayers $9.3 billion over those three years. And that's an extra 27,500 smackers for each bureaucrat each year on average. All right, Franco, I, I know you're going to eviscerate me, but let me play devil's advocate for a second here. What is PSAC claiming <laughs> that they really need this $27,500 each pay raise for doing the exact same job? What is their argument here uh, You know that they're, they're claiming all this extra money is needed? Okay, so let me just read you a direct quote from, from PSAC, this federal government union. Quote, wages are stalled. The cost of living is is rising and workers are being left behind, end quote. That's that's what they say. OK, let's dissect that. So our government wages stalling, our government employees falling behind. Hardly. OK, let me read you another quote. This one from the parliamentary budget officer, the government's own independent budget watchdog. The PBO says, quote, Government spending on public servant salaries and benefits is forecast to climb to almost $55 billion this year or about $130,000 per full-time employee. Does that sound like wages are stalling to you, Jay? It doesn't to me. The PBO, so. the PBO also goes on to say, quote, over the past seven years, personnel spending by the government grew by an average of 6.7% annually. And so much for stalling. Yeah, so much. Man, I want to get on that stalling. You know what I mean? (laughs) Okay, so here's some information that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation dug up. In 2021, in 2021, folks, there were 114,000 federal employees that received more than $100,000 in annual salary. Annual salary, okay? That's a 163% increase since 2015. A total, a total of 312,000 federal government employees received at least one raise in 2020 or 2021. That means that anywhere between 93 and 98% of all federal bureaucrats received at least one pay raise during the pandemic. Yeah, uh, I know both of us have talked about a tale of two pandemics before, and it's certainly popping up here as well. Um, All right, Franco, it's pretty clear to me, uh, I think everybody listening to this, that uh, employees in Ottawa, they're doing, government employees, they're doing just fine right now. Uh, But, you know, PSAC is right that inflation is high. So what about that? Well, okay, inflation is high. (laughs) Inflation is high. (laughs) But Jay, what does more paid time off have to do with inflation? How does four weeks of vacation help a bureaucrat afford the price of chicken. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, and let's not forget here that government employees already receive uh, an extra 9% compared to their counterparts working for a business. So the government needs to fix that before we even start talking about higher pay for federal government government employees. So you know what, Jay? I think we've debunked these uh, these claims from the federal government union. It really seems to me that Well, hold on a second. Maybe these demands aren't really about stalling government wages or high inflation. Maybe these demands are really all about milking taxpayers for as much money as they can before someone derails this gravy train up here in Ottawa. 
Yeah, I think that might very well be a rationale there. And I and I got to hope that someone's going to derail that gravy train soon. Folks, look, you need to, uh, you got to speak out before you're getting leased here as taxpayers. You got to contact your MP, speak, have them speak out publicly against these crazy government union demands. Really contacting your MP, it does make a difference. They need to hear from people like you. And Franco, thanks so much for bringing us this story today. Hi, everyone. My name is Carson Binda, and I'm the BC Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, holding down the fort for our taxpayer army here in beautiful uh, Vancouver. I'm being joined by my very good friend and colleague, Dr. Jay Goldberg, today. Jay, we've heard a lot in the news lately about the 2026 FIFA World Cup coming to both Vancouver and Toronto and a few other cities in, in the U.S. and Mexico. And you crunched the numbers for us, and you found out that for every minute of playtime, it's going to cost taxpayers in Toronto and Vancouver more than half a million dollars. Can you walk us through those numbers? I mean, calculating the cost of a sporting event per minute of playtime, it's an interesting angle. Why don't you walk us through how you got to those numbers and what they mean for taxpayers here in BC and over there in Ontario? Yeah, for sure. And of course, the implication is going to be for taxpayers all across the country because both Toronto and Vancouver are going to be asking their provincial governments and their federal governments for a heck of a lot of money. So anyone listening is going to have implications. Uh, look, we are sporting fans here at the CTF. We're big Blue Jays fans. I happen to also be a soccer fan, uh, hockey. We love this stuff. But we also look out for the interests of taxpayers. And so uh, we're always asking, you know, is hosting a sporting event worth what it's going to cost taxpayers? I'll give you a preview of the answer. The answer is almost always no. Uh, and that's particularly the case when you're looking at relying on the government and therefore taxpayers to foot the bill, which appears to be the case here. Uh, the issue, especially with FIFA in 2026, is that the games are going to be spread across 16 cities. So all of these cities are going to have to spend a lot of money to get their their um, you know their arenas, get everything ready to go. But they're all hosting a small fraction of the games, so they're getting smaller economic benefit, but a similar cost. So in Toronto, they're estimating that it's going to cost two hundred ninety million dollars to get the city ready to host these games, these five games in twenty twenty six, and the cost is a tiny bit lower in Vancouver. They're estimating. $260 million. So if you divide that between, if you divide that by five games, each game is played for 90 minutes. Uh, if you do that division, you're going to come out to $644,000 cost per minute in Toronto and uh, about $570,000 per minute in Vancouver. So again, both over half a million dollars a minute. And you really have to ask, is this going to have the economic benefits that outweigh that? Uh, again, the preview is no. We'll talk about that in a minute. But finally here, we've got someone starting to raise some questions. Premier Doug Ford, uh, you know, the province is being asked to pay a third of the bill here. And he's raising questions about whether or not there's actually going to be economic benefit and just what the costs are going to be for taxpayers. So it's good to see that here. And I would love to see your good friend, David Eby, ask some questions about that over there as well. Oh, I'd love to see our premier asking those tough questions, but I don't think that's something uh, taxpayers over here have come to expect from this government. Um, but can you really walk me through why Ford is starting to ask these tough questions? I mean, what what did it for him? 
Well, I think you looked at the funding model and look, it's going to cost $290 million, according to the city, to host these games. But the city is also saying that the economic benefit is only going to be $307 million. So that's a $17 million gap. If these games are even 6% over budget and practically every games that have been hosted in Canada and elsewhere are over budget, that's going to be a net economic loss. And then I think Ford is also looking at the fact that you're asking for $290 million directly from taxpayers, but all of the benefit is going to go to the tourism industry in downtown Toronto. So the hotels, restaurants, uh, you know, other tourist activities. And look, we want these areas to succeed. But is it really fair to take almost $300 million out of the pockets of taxpayers uh, and then just funnel the benefit into the pockets of a few businesses? I mean, this is corporate welfare in anything but name. And so I think that's why he's raising the concerns. The concerns are also, and I know you can speak to this uh, with, with the history of the Vancouver Olympics, the cost overruns are the norm. So if our margin is so slim at 6%, you can bet it's going to be a net economic loss. And, you know, if it's anything like what happened in Vancouver, it's going to be a big net economic loss. Well, yeah, I mean, thanks for mentioning the example of the Olympics that we hosted way back in 2010. But I remember when we hosted those Olympics here in Vancouver, the cost at the end of the day was 23% higher than these initial government estimates. So cost overruns with these, with these big international sporting events are all part of the parcel. They're part of the package. Um, time and time again, government has shown us that if they want to waste money, hosting these big sporting events is a great way for them to do it. And we're already starting to see some of that taxpayer pain that you were mentioning, Jay, over here in B.C., the city of Vancouver, starting this month, this February, is charging everyone who stays in our city overnight an extra $2.50 on every $100 they spend at a hotel or Airbnb or motel in the city of Vancouver. You can't easily find a hotel room in Vancouver's downtown core for under, say, 400 bucks right now. That means for a group of students coming into town from Victoria or, or the Okanagan for the weekend are going to be slapped with an extra 10 bucks in taxes. I mean, that's the cost of a couple slices of pizza and a soda. That's their dinner for the evening. It's crazy. And what really gets me about this is times are so tough for everyone right now for taxpayers, for businesses. I mean, especially in the hospitality industry, they were just hit with years of forced lockdowns and travel bans during the pandemics. Now that they're just starting to get back on their feet, they're being hit with a new tax punishment that's going to turn people away. So, Jay, I, you know, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried for Toronto. I'm worried for Vancouver. These games sound like a terrible idea, and I'm, I'm glad that Premier Ford is asking tough questions. But what's the situation? I, is it a done deal or is there still time for our supporters to stop this? So it's pretty well a done deal in terms of what cities are going to host uh, the game. So, you know, Toronto will be hosting some games and so will Vancouver. But what's not settled is the funding model. Now, FIFA has this outrageous funding model where all of the ticket revenue is supposed to go to FIFA, even though these cities are going to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars to get the cities ready. Uh, the other thing is, at least in Toronto's case, the $290 million of cost for taxpayers they've laid out, 
They're looking at taxpayers to foot the entire bill spread across three levels of government. But what we need to be pushing for is more involvement in the private sector. If the tourism industry and the private sector is going to be the beneficiaries of hosting these games, then they need to share in the cost. And I think we absolutely need to be looking at more sponsorships, more engagement with the private sector so that we can minimize costs for taxpayers as much as possible. If you look at the only games in recent memory that have really succeeded in terms of benefiting cities more than they've cost them, it's because they've involved the private sector. And so that's exactly what we need to do. And so our supporters uh, and everyone out there needs to be pushing both the mayors of Toronto and Vancouver, but also the provincial governments and the federal government not to commit to funding these games to you know the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars without first ensuring that there is very strong private sector involvement to offset the cost as much as possible. So that's what we need to be pushing for. And as I said, you know, jokingly earlier that maybe Edmonton's the city that benefited. They spent money pitching the games, but they're not going to be hosting them. So they're actually saving some money over there. But look, people in Edmonton will even be paying for these games because both Vancouver and Toronto are asking for the feds to foot part of the bill. So this impacts people all across the country. A taxpayer, no matter where you are in Canada, is going to be affected by these games. And so it is definitely up to you to push very hard to make sure that Toronto and Vancouver are incorporating private sponsorships and getting costs for taxpayers down as much as possible so we don't have a boondoggle on our hands. You're absolutely right, Jay. I think the taxpayers of Edmonton dodged a massive bullet here. Thank you so much for your time, Jay, and thanks for all your hard work exposing the true costs to taxpayers of hosting these games. Always great to look out for taxpayers. Great to be with you.